Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a show featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of art, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hasha Montasser. I'm joined today by Faraz Jalboud, founder of Baraka, a Dubai-based fintech company offering commission-free mobile trading platform. Baraka received regulatory authorization from the Dubai Financial Services Authority earlier this year and is now live for all interested parties. Baraka allows users in the region access to over 5,000 US listed securities, so names like Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, you name it, without any minimum investment requirement. I should also mention that I'm an angel investor in Baraka as part of my own early stage tech portfolio. We get into Faraz's professional journey, as well as his own investment background and the mission that he's driving through Baraka. Oh, and how the transition from investor to entrepreneur slash tech founder also shows up in what he wears. I mean, the, the listeners can see you, but you look like a typical now tech startup entrepreneur, black t-shirt. That's how I dress now. Is that how you dress now? Yeah. Is that conscious or is that, is that part it's of It's conscious. The- every, way, every morning I wake up <laughs> thinking, how can I look more like a tech entrepreneur? <laughs> and, I tell it, you and it's always the same answer. Because I tell you something, <laughs> I mostly only wear black and white. Yeah. But now I've done a new thing. This is very recent. I, you, have, you, haven't, you haven't, it's not today, but typically. I wear very colorful shoes. Oh, okay. So I've been wearing these like orange sneakers. I've gone wild with the sneakers. Yeah. I'm it's a way at, a, at, a, at 47 to express myself after a decade of black and white. So I'll tell you honestly, but why do you do it? Or why did you do it? I, I, I tried a few other things and now it feels weird. If I would come in a green t-shirt, I would just feel really weird. So I'm very comfortable in black and white. Um, if I put on 10 kilograms, it goes more black than white. But other than that, I stick with the black and white. I, I think I, I kind of do it for the efficiency of it. It is very efficient. Like I got to tell you. like Steve Jobs said that. Yeah, you don't have this. Easy, easy, I know you're, you're, gonna, you're trying to no, make me seem like I'm trying to be Steve Jobs. I'm not trying to be Steve Jobs. Yeah, this is Isamaki. you know, uh, <laughs> turtlenecks, right? And he said, "Yeah, I'm not wearing a turtleneck, by the way." And then he asked Isamaki to give him like 50 of them. Yeah, just for the listeners, I'm not wearing a turtleneck. I don't have you know little wireframe glasses, and it's the uh, it's the fact that I don't have to think about it. You know, you just That's wake true. up, you kind of like I own like you know multiple pairs or multiple shirts of the same no, thing and it's just super easy it is it is no and it's uh, i mean i think that's one of the joys of running your own thing is that you can wear whatever you want you can, you can do whatever you yeah, want you can well. do whatever you want yeah. for, for the most it may part. not be good but you it know you can <laughs> all right let's jump in so i'm curious so you grew up in canada second generation palestinian did you always know that you would want to do your own thing? Were your parents entrepreneurs or ran their own businesses? Or you're from a family of doctors and engineers and now you've kind of just cut the, the umbilical cord? I guess I kind of cut the umbilical cord. It wasn't really that we were doctors and engineers, but everybody kind of just had jobs. Okay. Um, I think various people throughout my extended family had businesses. And that's always been the case. Not my immediate family. I think it's probably a mix now that I think about it. But it wasn't like... It wasn't instilled in me either way, like you should be an entrepreneur or you should be an engineer or you should be, it wasn't, that wasn't, there was no directive. And I always kind of felt like I had a... A thing for business. Yeah, a calling for it, for sure. That's interesting. And, and I tried multiple things at different times, you know, different stages of life, but... What kind of things? Uh, what did I do? Like one summer we had like a, uh, like a small landscaping business when I was okay. a student. Interesting. Um, 
Uh, multiple things. Like yeah, no, it's interesting. Small because little things. You it's know. interesting. I mean, I, my parents were both academicians in academia, I mean, professors in university. So business was not part of the conversation. Conversation was mostly very theoretical. Right. So me today sort of running my own business is a, definitely an anomaly in many ways. And I didn't grow up around it. And I think a lot of people that I speak to that have their own businesses or if they grew up in that environment with the pluses and minuses, right? Because there's a certain angst that comes with it. There's a certain up and down. I didn't experience that growing up. Right. Uh, it, and most of our conversations were very theoretical, to be honest with you. Yeah. Didn't speak much about things that are actually happening. Right. So to be now in a business where it's all about what's actually happening is strange. Well, what did you think you were going to do when you when you grew up? I mean, I, I, I kind of looked up to my dad at the time. He was an economist, so I guess I studied economics and Okay. I guess I assumed at the time that I would probably go on and do a PhD and do something kind of academic. Uh, I didn't, um, to their disappointment. But, <laughs> but uh, well, my wife did at least. At least somebody in the family did. But, you know, I, I didn't know. But it certainly never occurred to me at the time that I would start a business. And I didn't know much about business. My exposure was very limited. That's why I'm asking. So you kind of knew that you would want eventually do your yeah. own thing. Yeah. I always had that feeling. I, okay. always, I, always, I just didn't know how it would shape up. And you wind up, so in the early stages of your career, you were in, in finance, broadly speaking, private banking. Yep. Was that a conscious choice to go into some kind of financial? So no, not really. I okay. mean, it was kind of, how did it happen? It was kind of, um, you know, when you, when you graduate university, you kind of, in some sense, you know, end up where you end up sure. for, you know, various reasons. I got a job in banking and I thought, Hey, I'll, you know, I'll try this. And then it just stuck for 10 years. And 10 what years. I found in that was the, the joy that I found in investing. And, you know, so I, I, you know, I love investing. And so I didn't, did you start investing at a young age? Uh, Your no, personal personally, investing? no, yeah. no. Okay. And this is the thing now, now with this mission that we're, you know, this, like people should invest at a young age. Yeah. And so it's part well, of things have changed. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But, but it's part of, you know, it's part of the excitement that gets me going because I didn't have that kind of know-how when I was younger. And also it wasn't readily accessible. Let's it wasn't be very clear. It wasn't, right? it wasn't. So if you did have the know-how at 18, it's not like you could have found an app like Baraka. We'll talk about it in a second or a website or you didn't have any of that. Yeah. But also it's, it's, it's more, it's broader than that. Right. It wasn't part of the dinner table conversation. No, it wasn't. Like I didn't grow up like with family members sitting around talking about, you know, their stock portfolios and yeah. Uh, and so that, so it's different, you know, the, the upbringing was different from that perspective. And you look at like people who have been doing it for generations or, you know, families that have been doing it for generations, it's part of their dinner table conversation. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. To some degree, right? You're right. And so it becomes natural. Yeah, you invest, you have, you know, like retirement plans, you do all this stuff. And that's not, I mean, I don't know if, how it was for you. Well, it was very different in the sense that when I got my first job on Wall Street, I was trading every day. Right. But because that was my day job, it wouldn't have occurred to me to actually have my own portfolio. Also, I knew nothing about <laughs> yeah, equities. Exactly, so I, yeah. I didn't for a while. And then I did the usual thing when you're in the States. I opened an E-Trade account and I started slowly right. doing some of that. And I learned and I made mistakes and all of that. But you're right. It wasn't part of popular culture generally. Right. I'm also right. 10 years older. So right. it was a bit of an earlier time. So you didn't start investing right away, but you liked working in finance. Yep. So let me actually go back to how did you wind up coming to the region? So I came to the region probably 15 years ago. I, um, I had some family here. I had just finished university. I, hadn't, I had no plans on staying here whatsoever. I grew up in Canada. I had finished yeah. 20 years in Canada and didn't expect to kind of come to the region to stay. And you came straight to Dubai? I came, no, I was in Qatar. Um, and I ended up getting this job 
Um, with a bank? With a bank. Uh, and I spent like, I had some family there I was visiting and I ended up just kind of staying. And my whole, my plan was to stay for a couple of years to save up some money to pay off my student loans. And uh, I got, you know, I basically, it's been, you know, 15 years. And so I kind of changed a couple of jobs and, you know, evolved in my career and then ultimately ended up in Dubai about six, seven years ago now. On the buy side, investing side, if you want yeah. to put it this way. Right. And that's a big jump for maybe people that are right. not in finance that might sound like the same thing, but it really isn't. So private banking essentially is a relationship manager job right. where you are uh, managing your clients, high net worth individuals. Right. You may give them some advice, but really mostly your, your job is handholding. I'm not belittling the job at all, but I'm saying you're not really making investment decisions too much. That's a pretty big jump to then be working with a family office and in fact, making investments uh, in sectors that are quite complex, because in your family office, yep. that's when I got to know you, yep. you were investing across the gamut, mostly in private companies, early stage companies, tech companies, but there's a complexity yeah, that comes sure. with that. For sure. Did you have that skill set or did you learn on the job? No, I think you definitely learn on the job. I mean, I didn't have that going in, but you have a, a, a basic understanding. Coming out of private banking, you have a basic understanding of markets. building asset allocation yeah. models yeah. and markets. And, you know, so like the base was there, but the assets that we got into in that role were completely different. Yeah. Right? So my world was upside down. You, know, you I was now like, have to know companies. It's not just <laughs> yeah, about portfolio yeah. management. Or yeah, I mean, you looked at companies there because you look through an equity sure. or a bond to, to see the underlying company, but we weren't looking at tech companies per se. At such an early stage. Yeah, and you know, I, I wasn't used to seeing companies that were losing money for you know, three, decades, four, five sometimes. years, yeah. decades. And I was thinking like, why would you invest in a company that, you know, would lose this much money and not invest in like the, an equivalent? Yeah, Apple. It's actually very interesting because we're seeing now globally a trend that I, I know you're aware of, of um, institutional investors across the different. So if we broadly say you have early stage companies, you call venture capital, late stage companies, it's called the private, private equity, and then public companies. You are now seeing, for the first time, really, a massive crossover. The early stage guys, guys like Andreessen and others, are starting to move up the curve a little bit. And definitely the late stage guys and the public guys are moving earlier in the, in the stage of... of. So this, these things are, for the first time that I've seen it, starting to get muddled. Uh, historically, people had a very profound knowledge base of one or the other. How did you... So you had to make that jump. How did you get your head around that? I think it took me a long time. Mm. I think what I learned after a few months was it's not really understanding every company as much as it is understanding the mentality behind how to invest in technology or how to invest in growth businesses. You have to put aside what you think, what, how you, how you perceive, perceive value. You know, traditionally, you perceive value as you know, maybe free cash flow or whatever, other metrics that are more... Profitability. Yeah, yeah, profitability. Silly things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> things that used to matter. <laughs> things yeah. that used to matter, yeah. exactly. But then when, when you invest in, in growth businesses, you're, you're really investing in the growth. Uh, and, and so you just have to make that switch. And so it took me a while to understand that I had to rewire my brain. But then eventually, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that's what you have and, to do. And it's not just... And, I, and I'm still... I mean, you still go through it, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at crypto and NFTs and you know, yeah. new technology that I'm thinking like, wow, like, how do you look at this? How do you assess this? 
So there's a part about venture capital, especially the very early stages, that very much is about, we have someone else on the, on the podcast here, a venture capitalist, who spoke about, for him, it was all about the team. It was all about the founder or the founders. Um, versus like, you know, again, going to public markets company, Apple, yeah, I mean, sure, it was important that they had Steve Jobs and, uh, you know, they now have uh, Tim Apple, as they call him. Tim Apple, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I've heard uh, of him. But ultimately, it's about the company, really. So was that, how did you make that switch? Because that's another switch as well. If you're meeting with Hashem and Hashem is coming in and saying, you know, for us, um, I'm, I'm an early stage company, opened a year ago, just starting to have some revenue. You're, how much are you looking at me versus at my business model? I, I don't I don't know percentage wise yeah, 70 30 70 me 30 pretty yeah. much and now that's that, a complete departure from what you were doing before where complete that departure. doesn't come it's, in it's you don't go day. and ask who the founder is a public totally company. Night, it's night and day yeah it's, it's a it's completely different you know the way that you look at it is completely different and it's very much founder driven like you said and that's why you see a lot of early stage investing with no due diligence um, or very little due diligence and very little kind of like prodding around the business model and so on. Because ultimately the founder, if they're a good founder and you suspect they're a good founder, they will find, it, yeah, they they'll, find a way. they'll find a way. They'll find a way. And it's really all about that, right? Uh, and I never used to think like that when investing Neither in did I. equities and bonds and so on and, and so forth. So this is very like... As someone who dabbles into early stage investing, that was for me also a very big... Yeah, departure for me to start saying I have to look at this person. You know what? Even if the business model is not business model is not perfect today, this person will figure it out. Yeah, and, and that's a leap of faith that's not easy to make when you're not used to investing like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and in most cases, like you also have to look at the business and the market and the and you know the TAM and all of these things that are important. TAM being total addressable, total addressable market. market, and see if the founder you think the founder is lining up with your you know with the opportunity yeah with the opportunity and that's the most important thing is that also the timing really matters and all of these kinds of different factors that that impact how, how you think the business will work so if somebody's coming to you at some point saying i want to i don't know launch any business but you think the market is completely moved away from that mm. as much as you like the founder it's very difficult to get behind that right if they're selling you you know very very a silly product uh at a, at a time where you think just doesn't make sense it's tough to get behind, but ultimately, if the timing is reasonably okay and the founder is just really great, you probably just go, you, you'll run with it, right? And this is a perfect setup for <laughs> yeah. what you've done. So we'll talk about that. You put yourself, we fast forward a little bit. You became that founder that went into a market. I'm becoming a founder. Well, you're still, becoming yeah, a founder yeah. with a large tab. So just to be clear here yeah. for, for our listeners, total addressable market. I'll explain it, and maybe you can explain what your company is about. So you launched a company called Baraka. Yes. Um, earlier this year. Yes. Formally. And it's a trading app, essentially, right? So, uh, so basically, you trade. I go on the app on Baraka, and then I can trade uh, stocks. Yes. And very simply put. Yes. Commission-free. Yes. And when you made that decision, so I'm going to go into Baraka in a second, but I want to talk about the jump. So you've just very beautifully explained how you look at <laughs> Can founders me about something. <laughs> and how you look at the market. When you do that analysis on yourself, if that's at all possible, how do you, where do you line up? I mean, not, I'm not telling you to give us an estimate of your, of your own capabilities, but you looked at that market. This market is obviously a new market, very exciting, but also relatively competitive. It's a business to consumer model, which are notoriously difficult. Yes, and expensive which I'm learning to build. now. Right, exactly. 
So walk us through that decision. Did you one day uh, wake up and, and did, did you, for example, meet a company that's doing this and you said, oh, you know what, I think I can do that? Or did you always know that eventually you will do it? Well, you kind of knew you wanted to start your own business, but did you know you're going that direction of, of uh, trading? I think what's interesting with this business is that it lines up with my experience, my passion, sure. and the, the market opportunity. And so, and you know, I often think about this and I get asked this question, it's like, why this? And it's very much, I didn't have to think too much about this. This was very much in me, you know, this is like- Intuitive. Yeah, it's very intuitive. I invest personally, I invest professionally, I, lo I, I love it, you know that, we have many chats about investing. And, um, and I, in my last- Yeah, and role, you're a bit of a trader yourself, I, mean, I have to say. I used to be, I, not, I've not known anymore. you long enough time. now to know that, you have yeah, a little I mean, bit I, of a trading mentality. A little bit, yeah. a little bit, not too much. And I don't, you know, I, I don't recommend that people go trading. No, no, I completely understand, <laughs> I'm not saying it's a recommendation. <laughs> if, you, if you zoom out of that, and you go back to your question about kind of investing, and why this business, it's, it's very much about proving a thesis. And so when you're investing, you're proving a thesis, at least the way that I used to invest, right? You are looking at a market, you're assessing it, you're seeing where the gaps are, you're looking at the underlying companies, you're trying to find the right company that you think will fill that gap and has the largest market opportunity and the founders that will execute that basically, right? Correct. And I looked at this and I thought, man, I just don't see something in this market that I want to use. Correct. And, and so I set out to kind of create that. In fact, it didn't really exist. If your average person, let's say sitting in Dubai yep. or in Cairo, wants to trade US stocks today, he either has to be wealthy enough, connected enough to have a foreign account, which is not likely, or a second residence, or he really doesn't have many choices. Yeah, they have to use like call a, a broker. You yeah, or they have broker. to have you know use like one of these legacy apps that are kind of you know exist in the market that have been around for a long time, yes, but, but exactly. don't really give you the kind of user experience that I would you know the, yeah. the experience that I wanted to yeah. produce in in the app that we've. It's a beautiful app. I have to say this. We're just getting started. Yeah, like no, I mean, I, I don't feel like we're there yet, and there's many ideas and many things that I want to do, and the team's always stopping me and saying like, "Hold on, let's get this. You know, let's finish this part and, and move on to the." And, and that's the right way to do it. But yeah, I think I think that's pretty much what you know. That's that's the rationale behind it. That's the reason that all came together is basically trying to prove a thesis that I think we can create something in the region that is of value and size that that's we, from the region but you know people would say to me you know it's funny because it comes from my experience like where do you where do you trade you know which which platform do you use and you tell them you know the like three or four that exist yes. in the market and quite often they'd come back to me and they'd say terrible experience I couldn't open an account or you know i hate the interface and i don't understand it whatever and like i swear and i've mentioned this a couple of times to people it's like the thing that really kind of put me over the edge was why I started this business was people would, people would say to me, I'm just going to wait for Robin Hood to come to the region. Yeah, that's right. I swear. I think and, a lot of people said that. And it was just like, wow, well, you'll be waiting for a while, but well, yeah. like, why isn't anybody really tackling this? Faraz launched Paraka to the world in 2020 and has raised more than $5 million in funding to date. In fact, one of their investors is Noah Capital, whose founder, Khaled Talhouni, was on the show a few weeks ago, and I had asked him how they go about investing in companies. You know, first and foremost, and this is true at the earlier stage, right? The earlier you are, the more true this is, is like nothing matters more than the founder, right? Like that's kind of critical or the founder and then the management team that the founder has, has brought around them. Because 
when you're at like seed or pre-seed or you know that very early stage where, what you start with is very rarely where you end up with right it's a very very different kind of like outcome and that's very ephemeral and intangible it's, it's hard to i couldn't kind of like um assess that in a in a very objective way you know there's certain things you look for like past experience for example like i said the Karim mafia the ability to intellectualize problems uh, but then equally the ability to operate and to kind of bring a team around you these are all highly intangible and subjective so you know sometimes it's a bit of pattern recognition that you kind of try to kind of identify that and then when you can marry that to a thesis that's a hypothesis and then you kind of dig into it and say like why is that a gap and how do you solve that gap and then if you can marry that with a team that's working on solving that problem that is the right team that's a secret sauce you usually get it wrong one one side or the other uh, but that, that's kind of the core core proposition We'll continue our conversation right after the short break. Welcome back. You're listening to our conversation with Faraz Jalbut. When I disintegrate this a bit, you have a front piece, front end piece, which, as you said, is all about the user experience, the simplicity, the ease of use. Lack of friction, I would imagine. Yes. Because ultimately you want Hashem to press trade, click on trade, and, you know, buy or sell XYZ. Behind that, there's a very complex tech stack. You do not have that background, and it's quite complicated. I don't have that background either, but, you know, yeah. it's just companies I invest in. Did you not, did you from day one find a person that you felt can kind of almost be your counterpart on the tech side? Just that people don't sell you the wrong thing because I can. You have this beautiful idea. You probably have good sense of aesthetics and user experience because you use it yourself. Yeah. But then, and if I come to the back end and I tell you, for us, use this or that, how would you know? I mean, how would you even do? You your spend deal? a lot of time talking to people, okay. understanding from various people, like you know what what have you used? Talk to different founders. Talk to you know people in the industry. You can pick it up. Sure. Like if you do enough no, no, reading you and you can. do enough research, you can pick it up. But it was daunting. I'm just trying to say that. I would imagine that piece incredibly being... daunting. Okay. And, you, and now, and so it's funny because <laughs> a lot of founders kind of reach out now and say, "How did you start?" And you know what? You know how did you get over that? Especially this hump. And I think the point is, you just keep going, mm. right? You'll you'll spend a little bit more money than you should have, and you'll mm. spend a little bit more time than you should have, and like things won't be as smooth as they will be in the future. Hopefully, if you keep going. But it, it's okay. And so yes. that's the, I think that's the thing that you have to remind yourself is like, it's okay. Yeah. You know, you don't, nobody expects you to know every single detail of the tech stack. No. You have to hire good people who manage this. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, either consultants or, you know, employees or other founders or whoever you bring alongside, um, you have to trust their opinion. I think it's kind of like, don't get too, too deep, too quick. Mm. with something that you you don't necessarily know, know too that much, much about. about. Yeah. And from the front end piece, were you from the outset targeting a particular, I mean, were you looking at Gen Z or millennia or my age, which are, I don't know. Over 50? No, we oh, don't. Gosh. We don't target over 50. <laughs> this is offensive. For the record, I'm 47 <laughs> and feel like 46. So Look for- like 45. <laughs> No, so did you have any particular demographic in mind or were you just like, I'll build and then it will see who's be attracted to it? Again, going back to like proving the, th- the thesis, mm. my thesis was always that under 30 is... Big opportunity. Big opportunity, 
underpenetrated. Okay. Do we have statistics for the region outside statistics of how many under 30 actually care to trade or trade? Does the numbers exist? I don't know. We have some data. Okay. I don't think it's conclusive. Okay. So I won't give a I won't But give it's a very number. low, I would imagine. I think that people in general in the region are really underinvested. Across incredibly the- underinvested as as a household, you know, per household in the region. Mm. I don't think that we're even But are you comparing us to the US? Because anything would be underinvested compared to the US. No, I think if you look at other emerging Asia, markets, Europe, okay. even China and India, we're very low. Very, yeah, very low. Is it because Our own capital markets are not very developed. I think that's part of it. And I think also the culture around it doesn't exist. Like I mentioned to you, like the dinner table conversation, yes. like I think that like a lot of people in the region probably, you know, face the same thing. You know, yeah. I don't know how many people talk about investing in the region. I think money is taboo in the region as well. People don't generally, generally well, don't talk about it. It's interesting. So pre Lehman crash for a period of about seven minutes, there was a, a moment where um it felt like you know you know when you kind of take the cliche of like you go into a taxi and the driver asks you about a stock and that's when you know that like it's a bubble yeah, this was in dubai yeah and this was everywhere so i remember very well <laughs> yeah. going back to egypt and being at the airport and i worked for efg at the time and the the officer passport officer looked at my passport saw efg smiled <laughs> and then went up or down he wanted to know if the stock is going up or down and then i was this was literally peak peak you know six months before the crash right and i remember going then into my car and being like i gotta oh. sell everything i gotta go out of the market <laughs> I this called, is it i called my then boss and i'm like i just want to let you know that i mean i think either the stock is i don't know what's happening with the stock exactly but we're at the, yeah so that that moment did exist but you're right i think if you ease out across periods yes it's probably a very low number and it's not part of the conversation it's not i think it's changing and i think like You know, it's starting to emerge here, but if you look at other markets, the US or Western markets in general, what's very interesting now is that you have a whole generation of new investors that are between the ages of 18 to, I don't know, 30, who are talking about investing on a daily basis. Yes, correct. Investing in markets, investing in crypto, investing in real estate. And you can invest in any asset class now, which I think we should touch on, but... Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have a whole generation of people who are talking about investing. To me... That is good. That is good for society. Why is that good for society? Because being financially literate is a positive thing. Could for, you not for make your, a case for your own self, for your house? Many of them are not don't have the and I'm going to get into how you are trying to create which I think you are which I think is great. You're trying to educate your investors as well. Not yeah. you just you're not just encouraging them to trade. There is an argument that, you know, I'm not going to talk about you, I'm talking about Robin Hood, a very well-known argument as you know that well, you know, there's a lot of speculative froth Um, how are you working on the literacy piece? So if Hashem is, again, is 18 years old, comes on your app, has a vague idea what a stock is, what a bond is, what do I do? I mean, you jump on our app. There's a whole section about called we call Learn, okay. um, where you can read about different topics that relate to finance. But then also we have a quiz. We've built this kind of in-app quiz where you can actually you know, read, read, the, the, um, read the article about that topic and then answer 10 questions oh, and there's no cost for you know to it or anything it's just about you spending the time understanding the content answering the questions building your knowledge building your confidence um and i think like going back to what you were saying is yeah some people are trading recklessly but is that the majority of people is that the majority of investors i don't know i mean i don't know the numbers i'm not going to just you know mm. throw numbers out but like Uh, I think people being invested in the market and seeing ups and downs and understanding the emotions that come with that, 
um, is a good thing over the long term. You know, the, the bad thing is leverage and being over leveraged and, you know, losing a, a lot more than you can afford. So leverage, just to be very clear, is people borrowing and investing with the borrowed money as yeah. opposed to their own money. That's always very dangerous. Because, and, and so we get asked about this all the time around, you know, the, the Robin Hood situation and people trading and, and so on. But this doesn't just happen with next gen consumers, right? This happens with hedge funds. It happens with family offices. It happens with government institutions and sovereign wealth funds. And, and so it happens. Yeah. I don't think you can say that, you know, next gen consumers don't know what they're doing. There's a lot of people in the industry that probably just take excessive risk and that applies across the board. It doesn't apply only to, uh, you know, a population of, you know, under 30, for instance. And so it happens. It's part of the market, unfortunately. But it, it's there. It, 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 you know, it exists. But no, for sure. the more it you educate, the more you learn. And it exists in every industry. It's not People don't just leverage for stock trading. Oh, everything. But I want to push you on that for a second. Could you not make the case that trading, as, I mean, I understand it as a service that Barca provides, but what good does it do for society? And I'm, I'm obviously being a bit, not hypocritical, but I come from a background where I've spent you know, a good chunk of my life doing that. But I remember actually going to a therapist, believe it or not, and her telling me, so let me understand what you're doing. So you make rich people richer? <laughs> I was like, if you put it that way, I need a lot more therapy. But uh, <laughs> my point is, so, you know, can, can, can you make a case here that there is value, not value for you as a company, but value for society, or Hashem buying and selling stocks? It's, it's not, I mean, let's not equate or doesn't trading matter. with investing, right? You know, okay. or trading, trading in general is, is, probably, is, is probably fine. But, you know, over trading or over leveraging these things, that's, you know, that's where you want to be cautious, right? But investing in general, as you build wealth for 10, 20, 30 year period, and it compounds over time, that's tremendous, right? Agreed, but then do I need your app for that? Sorry, I'm just being, you know, in other words, if you I'm buying Apple, Apple and I'm that, gonna, right? yeah, but if I'm gonna buy Apple and keep it for 15 years. But why not? Why not use the Baraka app then? Fair enough. Right? Fair enough. And, and so that's the point. I mean, we don't necessarily want you to trade. Okay. You know, that's, that's not our prerogative. Mm. What we want you to do is invest. And however you invest, whatever stocks you wanna pick or ETFs you wanna pick, that's on, you know, that's on the consumer and they should do their research and, and figure out what suits them and their risk appetite. But I think the, the message is, look, you know, very simple math, and you know this, having, having been an investor for a long period of time. If you buy the S&P 500 over the last 30, 40 years, if you buy it on a monthly basis for the last 30, 40 years, up and down through it all compounds. the cycles, it compounds over time, you would have made 10, 11% on an annual basis. If you compound that over a long period of time, it's a tremendous amount of money. Correct. When you overtrade, it's not. You, you, when you overtrade, you, 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 you destroy value. You destroy value, exactly. And so the idea is, and so a lot of, you know, a lot of our, our material, uh, the investment material is around this, right? You know, investing over the long term, understanding how to invest over the long term, understanding the terminology around investing. I mean, that's the starting point. Um, but all of this is positive. You know, uh, households that get wealthier, that ha are more financially literate, their children that grow up more financially literate, it's all very positive in the sense that you consume less, you invest more, you, you understand economic cycles. That's good. You know, to me, well, that, that I, is good. I, I broadly agree with you. Do, do, do you teach your kids to invest? Um, actually, you know, my son um, is supposed to present to me 
uh, a, a short, a short <laughs> presentation. No, it's true on the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. I mean, <laughs> nice for your I own investing. For my, yeah, I'm exactly, too lazy to do yeah, exactly. I'm too lazy Farming to do out the research. Yeah, I exactly. I, I have. Yeah, I know. I shouldn't say this. People are gonna like sue me for. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's ten-ish, but uh, no, that's a good age. I think it's a good age. I want to talk about that actually for a minute. So. Obviously, there's a huge move towards digital currencies. Yeah. There's even sovereigns like El Salvador that are now yeah. um, allowing um, digital currencies, cryptocurrencies to be part of their day-to-day -day, uh, life. What is your view on cryptocurrencies in general? And would be, that be something that we would be able to see on, on, on Baraka? It's something that we're definitely watching. Okay. Um, it's, I, I'm personally extremely fascinated by it. Mm. I don't know it well enough. I mean, I don't know the protocols in great detail and that kind of a thing. I, you know, obviously follow follow the news. And I know Ethereum and Bitcoin and the and the and what's happening. The in main space. currencies, yeah, the main coins. But I think what's interesting is what comes of this, right? Which we can't predict. You know, we don't know where this leads to. And so, governments creating their own digital currencies is great. I think. You know, it can take the place of traditional currency, which is fine. Correct, because the whole point of <laughs> yeah. cryptocurrency is entirely deregulated. Exactly. Right? So yeah. No so, one's regulating this. So I don't actually go to the bank machine and pull out dirhams if it's a coin, you know, that's traded electronically and that replaces my, you know, my dirham bills. Great. You know, that works very well for me. It probably has a lot of benefits, uh, you know, for consumers like being able to transfer faster when you kind of remove swift networks and these kinds of things. So I think, I think there's a benefit to it for sure so for too. consumers. What's very interesting to me is where does this go? And so we talked very briefly about NFTs and, you know, about all the stuff that's emerging around this. Smart contracts. Smart contracts yes. for everything, you know, the removing middlemen from basically just about any transaction. That's incredibly exciting. And then also when I think about, uh, not just our business, but where the space retail investing goes in the future, what these smart contracts or these kinds of coins could enable in terms of investments. And so if you remove the middleman, you create, you potentially create a new investment asset class behind these coins. So the owner of these tokens will benefit from, you know, from the, their production value or whatever, whatever they produce. And so that becomes, that becomes quite interesting to me. Do you buy that vision of, you know, I don't want to get off topic, but the metaverse and, you know, cryptocurrency. And I mean, it's, I think it's fascinating. I mean, you know, it's so interesting. I was listening to Kara Swisher the other day. Obviously, she's kind of older. Uh, her she's about your Scott age. Scott Galloway. I'm sorry? <laughs> she's about your she's age. She's not my age at all. <laughs> Minimum 15 year difference, I want to say. So Kara Swisher, you know. It's a recurring theme about it, Hashim's age. They were talking about the metaverse and both her and Scott Galloway were saying, ah, rubbish. You know, you talk to, of course, people 20 years younger or people like analysts like Matt Ball and some of these sort of people that talk about it all the time. And they're like, this is happening. Don't and discount anything. No, 100%. But do you buy that utopian dystopian? Well, I, I don't discount it mm. because I don't know where it's going to go. And I'm not, you know, I might not be the target consumer for that, for that you know, technology. Well, I'm, I'm asking this because crypto is very much part of that. I mean, kind of a... a yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's everything is, you know, that's, it's a whole digital realm that, yeah. you know, right. It's the metaverse. And an interchangeable and internet physical and digital realm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I, I don't discount it. I don't Would know. you want to live in that world? Yeah. Why not? You? I don't know. It freaks me out. How can you bit. say no? 
Well, I may not have a choice. Yeah, exactly. It may happen anyway. Exactly. But the question is, if I had a choice, would I want to be part of the metaverse? But you don't know what the metaverse is we like. We don't know what the metaverse is, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, you just have to kind of go You know what it. part I don't like so much? <laughs> the whole glasses thing. Like the whole AR, VR. Like I find it's Like I it's do not odd. think we should, yeah. We should be wearing Ray-Bans where right now I can look at Chirac and not be sure if he's recording me. Yeah, that's weird to me. And seeing me in gray. That's totally blue. weird. I find that so weird. And that's happening. I mean, I don't Facebook know why just that, came up. Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. And you know, Snap is working on this. and But Snap did this and then Facebook Snap copied it. Snap did this, well, as always. I mean, Facebook copied it. But to me, I mean, we're getting off topic, but this this really also moves in a kind of privacy realm that's very odd. I think I agree, but probably that's our generation talking. Or maybe like, you know, two generations. <laughs> we're going there again. But, but the idea is like, I don't think younger people have this conversation. They're used to kind of living their whole world on social media. And so like I'm out with, I don't know, my nieces or whatever. And they're, yeah. you know, they're filming and they're taking sh pictures and they're talking to their friends, but like they already live in this world. Two more questions uh, for you. Question number one, in terms of the region here, do you foresee us in, I don't know, 10 years, whatever the number is, not being able to go into a branch anymore? Yes. All of this being digital. You think that is, so the current, whatever bank it is around the corner will become a cinema or something. Uh, very much so. Okay. I mean, my own experience right now. Yeah, I think all of us, many of us. I mean, I mean, I, I never go to the branch. I had to go to a branch. And what's funny is, so this is my, you know, this is recently, a couple of a month ago or whatever. And I remember going to the same branch, you know, many years ago, I would go to the same branch in the same location. I went to that location. I couldn't find it on Google Maps. I went to that location. It was closed. Yeah. It was closed. And I went to the next place, which was really far away. And I said, you closed that branch. And they said, yeah, it's been closed. We closed like 20 branches over the last six months or something. It's a profound, profound effect on commercial real estate. Of I mean, course. it's going to happen, right? Of course, but it's happening in, in every kind Everything. of brick yeah, and mortar. All retail in general. Right? And, and just to kind of uh, finish on this topic, so what's the end game for you at Baraka? I mean, is this a company that you see yourself building for the next 200 years? Is it something that you feel like with the, the right metaverse. opportunity, given how, <laughs> given how, you know, lucrative but also exciting fintech in general is you could be selling to a larger you know or incumbent or a commercial bank or how when you think about this i know you've just started but has this and it presumably is something your investors may ask as well how do you look at an exit strategy or you're sort of like i'm in it let me just sort of you know work and see what happens honestly i don't think about an exit strategy at all okay. i think about how we can improve our product the different ways that people can make money now and in the future i you know we're focused on this product today but there are so many ways that people will inv can invest or will invest in the future so my mind is always racing about all of the different things that we can incorporate to be to enable people to make money especially retail investors um and you feel that because there are the robin hoods of the world you have a playbook so you've just recently congratulations graduated from Y Combinator, which is a very prestigious incubator, probably the most prestigious in the world, that probably gave you a playbook of other companies doing something similar, uh, especially in kind of more developed markets, the US or Europe, etc. Do you feel you have a playbook for the next couple of years? Or do you feel that this region is a bit different? And therefore, you take some elements of maybe things you learned at YC and things you've seen from companies that are a bit more, uh, you know, started a bit earlier, 
and you do it for yourself. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like the, the Uber Kareem kind of concept. Yeah, you have to, I mean, we're not trying to take a model from somewhere else. I mean, sure. we're, we're trying to build a model f that works here. And there's nuances to this market here that are very different. And, and so I guess some of the early learning that we have is you cannot, you know, we're not in the US and we're not in Europe and we're in the Middle East. And that comes with many, many different challenges. And expectations. And opportunities. And opportunities. Did I, you feel I, that the YC program was able to help you with that? Or was it very US-centric in the way that they're not, they're not. I don't think that they're very US-centric. Okay. I think like... I'm not claiming they are. I'm, quite, I'm asking. I'm yeah, like, no. I think that it's an incredible program. And, and they have the ability to kind of look at, you know, all of the different businesses that they funded all over the world and say, this looks similar mm -hmm. in nature. Talk to this guy. Yeah, person. exactly. And they, they help you kind of find people that have had similar experiences and they that's share great. their own experiences looking at thousands of companies on, a, on an annual basis. I mean, that's helpful, right? And so they don't say like, you should, you should do X, Y, and Z. It's about, you know, understanding where you are in your company life cycle and understanding, um, you know, all of the different elements that go with that, like financing and, and how to build product and all of these things. And then also part of that is market, right? How to, how to build for your market, putting that all together and then building your company around that. They don't try to tell you, hey, you know, just do what Robinhood's doing in the US or, you know, other people are doing in different parts of the world. It's them helping you understand all of these variables that come with company building and some of the stuff I didn't used to think about. Uh, to be able to build a product for for this market, not the other way around. You don't build a product for another market, you know, in here. Uh, and so that, you know, is a huge learning experience. Tremendous, absolutely tremendous. And the network is just unbelievable. And I can reach out to any of the founders that have been, that are in that network and ask these questions. Yeah, and I'm sure it even helps you with future fundraising, just Everything. generally, I guess, like a stamp it out for it. It's like a, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's an incredibly powerful network. You know, it's not like what people think, you know, it's not the traditional venture model. It's not how you build a business traditionally in venture. And I, I kind of came from yeah, a little bit of that background. Offline, which surprised me. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, like I came from this background of raise a bunch of money and go build and, you know, move really fast. And, and, and there, there is that element, but like, there's an element of like, know what you're doing, build thoughtfully. As needed as needed, don't overspend, don't overhire, don't, you know, don't go crazy. You're a very small fish. Don't, you know, don't kind of like don't burn all your, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so if you, if you just take your cues from investors, you'll just be raising a ton of money and just going crazy, you know, trying to build and, you know, acquire more market share, but it's a bit empty. And YC is the opposite of that. It's basically, you know, uh, build thoughtfully, make sure substance. you have yeah of substance right and then go scale and then when you scale it's that much easier to scale because you've built the right product we're still building the right product no sure and we'll course. be build, we will we'll be building it for many years to come you know it's brilliant but but yeah that's the that's the big takeaway well thank you congratulations i think it's great we wish you the best in your journey thank you thank you for having really me. enjoyed the conversation thank you Hashim. thank you Thank you for joining us again on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai and our content director is Farah Sharif. 
You can tell us what you thought of this episode by leaving us a review in your podcast app or find us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE. And please share a link with your friends if you've enjoyed this. We'll see you again in two weeks. Thank you.